Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I have a few things I'd like to rant about, if I may uh, use my host's privilege to do so, and they may stimulate some thoughts on your part as well. And then we'll just we'll get into it, basically. We've got the whole day to talk here. I want to start out with cancel culture. And I'm going to get to why the Republicans are doing this in just a minute. But first, let's talk about what they're doing. For example, in the 3rd Congressional District of Michigan, this is up in the Grand Rapids area, you know, the area that used to be, used to be represented by, by the guy who, who said, you know, yeah, let's go ahead and impeach Trump. <laughs> that guy's been replaced by Peter Meyer. Now, I grew up in Michigan. I, you know, Myers is a big grocery store chain that has become kind of like a Walmart chain across Michigan. In fact, I think they've spread across the Midwest. And uh, Peter Myers from the family that owns that, a billionaire family. And he beat in the primary a guy named Tom Norton 50.2% to 15.8%. Tom Norton got 15% of the vote. Lost to Peter Meyer. Peter Meyer is now the Republican congressman from Michigan's 3rd Congressional District. But Tom Norton's the loser. His website, he's still accepting donations. And he is asking, in fact, he's asking for $45.20 because Trump was our 45th president and he was reelected in 2020. Don't you know? Joe Biden didn't actually win the election, according to this guy. So this, this, and, and so this guy comes out and he tweets, the government cannot take my Goya beans, my Mr. Potato Head, my Dr. Seuss books, or my AR-15. Come and take it. This is America. I'll eat my green eggs and ham on Christmas in my pickup truck if I want to. Enough cancel culture. Cancel culture? And by the way, later in the day, Target, Target, you know, the store chain, the chain store all around the country, they announced that even in states like Texas and Mississippi that have ended mask mandates, they are still going to require people in their stores to wear masks. And so he, he tweeted, boycott Target, <laughs> cancel Target. But what is this all about? You know, well, well, first of all, last year, while Donald Trump was still president, the foundation, which holds the estate of Dr. Seuss, announced that six books, and they're all relatively obscure ones that he wrote way back in the day, Five of them characterizing Asian Americans in ways that are highly stereotypical. I'm not even going to describe it. And one describing African Americans as monkey-like creatures. They're going to pull those books. Now, Fox has been going hysterical about this. Oh my God, this is cancel culture. The government didn't make this choice. The people who own the books made this choice. And they made it while Trump was president. But Fox is still, oh my God, we're hysterical about this. Weirdly enough, Fox will not show those pictures on TV that they say shouldn't be canceled because they're racist pictures. So Fox is saying, oh my God, they're canceling something that shouldn't be canceled, but we can't show it to you. We're going to cancel it. Are you following this? And then Mr. Potato Head, Hasbro, you know, one of the biggest toy companies in the world, years ago, added Mrs. Potato Head 
In other words, there's a, you know, you can get female accessories. In fact, they did away with the potato years ago. Now they've got a plastic potato because people were complaining about potatoes getting really grody and their kids wanting to hang on to them. And so now it's all plastic, but it's a plastic potato. And then you put things on it and you can make it into Mr. Potato Head or you can make it into Mrs. Potato Head. They've got, you know, all the, the wig and makeup and, or not makeup, but, you know, lipstick and stuff like that. And so, hey, we're marketing a product that both boys and girls can use. So let's stop calling it Mr. Potato Head and just call it Potato Head. And you can make it Mr. Potato Head or you can make it Mrs. Potato Head. And that's what they did. They made this decision again while Donald Trump was. It was only recently announced, but Joe Biden had nothing to do with it. The Democratic Party had nothing to do with it. The U.S. government had nothing to do with it. This is called free market capitalism. But Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson are literally hyper, well, I don't know if they're literally hyperventilating about it, but it sure looks like they are. Oh my God, cancel culture? You can't have Mr. Potato Head anymore? It's now gender neutral Potato Head? In fact, somebody even edited the, the, the Wikipedia page, and maybe it was well-intentioned, I don't know, but they said, you know, he dropped the Mr. moniker to make it gender neutral. Well, no, it's not like they're saying, we've got a general neutral potato head. Or, you know, as Fox News and, and right-wing hate radio is implying, we've got an LGBTQ potato head. That's not what they're saying. They're saying our potato head is no longer branded as Mr. It's no, we're no longer just marketing this to boys. Which brings us to Jennifer Rubin. Jennifer Rubin was a Republican, a conservative. She writes for the Washington Post, has for years. She's an old line William F. Buckley conservative. Jennifer Rubin says in today's Washington Post, the headline, the MAGA phenomenon has never been about economics. And she points out that Republicans claim to be all about the blue collar middle class, the working class guy, the working class Joe, the, the people who go to, to NASCAR. But in fact, Republicans backed a tax cut for billionaires. They tried to strip health care coverage from tens of millions of Americans. They insisted that uh, frontline workers, including older people who work at like, you know, Walmart and whatnot, must prioritize the economy over their own health, that being the stock market. In fact, you know, the, the, the number two guy in, in Texas, Dan Patrick, even said, uh, you know, older people should die for the, you know, the economy. And they're continuing to do this. So she points to this thing. She says the MAGA phenomenon was never about economic dislocation. A 2018 study and the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences concluded that, quote, white Christian and male voters turned to Mr. Trump because they felt their status was at risk. The MAGA Republican Party, she says, has never represented the interests of working and middle class Americans. Instead, they, they represent the interests of those motivated by xenophobia, racism and misogyny, whatever their economic status. Statistically, voting for Trump correlates most closely. The one thing that you can constantly and consistently show among voters who voted for Trump is that the majority of them are white, not African-American, is that the majority of them believe that white people, not African-Americans, are discriminated against and are watching, and are watching Fox News. This is from Jennifer Rubin. She points out that um, among people making less than $100,000 a year, Joe Biden took 57% of the vote in the last election. Uh, Donald Trump only got 35% of people making under $50,000 a year. It's basically high-income white people who are essentially racists pushing and voting for Trump. So, cancel culture? No, it's a distraction. They're, they're simply trying to change the subject away from the fact that the Republican Party is all about helping rich people, billionaires, and giant corporations, and screwing the middle class, working class people. They don't want you to have a union. They don't want you to have a minimum wage. They don't want you to have health care. They don't want your kids to go to college for free. I mean, and they're pretty upfront about it. Uh, John in Boise, Idaho. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Um, it's my turn to rant now. Oh, uh, hey, okay. nobody's going to take my potato head. I'm trying to figure out if it's male or female or Republican, Democrat or Independent. Uh, but that's not what I called about. <laughs> anyway, I'm calling about the, uh, I don't believe that uh, we should have sanctions against Russia 
for putting that activist in prison for two years. I believe it's wrong, but I also believe we have a long list of judicial problems in this country. The system is broken. We put people in there, uh, and men and women in there for, what, decades, two or three decades. Then they come out with DNA, say, oh, they're innocent. And a lot of them, they knew they were innocent in the first place. They just had to have somebody to put in there. But anyway, I, I don't think it's right to put a sanctions on Russia for, for doing that because of what we yeah, got I, you know, After talking to Richard Wolfie, I'm inclined to agree with you, although I think that there does need to be a response. And I think the, the sanctions specifically were to the poisoning of Navalny, which happened when Trump was president. Of course, Trump you know, wants to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, so he, <laughs> and God only knows what else. So you know, he's not going to criticize anything coming out of Russia or a half a dozen other go- uh, countries you know, where he has Trump Towers or wants to have Trump Towers or where there's billionaires that have supported him and his buddies. But I'm not sure that economic sanctions have ever worked. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But, uh, John, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Ed in Pine Bush, New York. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, it's uh, great to finally get through to you. I've got something that will first strike you as a little off the wall. It's uh, some geeky science that uh, okay. may explain a number of things that you've been talking about over uh, the past couple of weeks like uh, maybe the psychological profile of a Trump supporter, or the bigger picture, what inspired me to call was your uh, suggestion that we think about um, the coronavirus and what's happening to us in terms of the big picture, uh, in terms of Gaia and its self-correcting mechanisms. Well, Ed, let's get right to it, because we just have one minute. Okay. My source of authority on this is a guy named uh, David Suzuki, who has a program called The Nature of Things. And he had a whole program devoted to the parasitic control of our brains. And he goes Oh, are you talking about now cryptosporidium? uh, No, I'm talking about, what's it called? Uh, Toxoplasma. Toxoplasma, yeah. The toxoplasma is caused by 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 an organism called cryptosporidium, isn't it? Oh, well, I don't know. That or was toxoplasma that, that a separate organism. Yeah, okay. That term didn't come up. I would have remembered it. But anyway, he, you know, he runs through, like, how these uh, microorganisms gets into, get into the brains of worms and grasshoppers and fish and so forth, and particularly into rats, to, make, to change their behavior and make them actually attracted to the smell of cat urine so that they will be eaten. Right. And anyway, and, uh, it, it goes right up to human And then right the cats get them beings. and they can spread them to us. Yeah. Well, apparently it's very common among human beings. They're half of the, the population is uh, affected by this. And they've done epidemiological uh, studies that show that societies that are more authoritarian um, and that, uh, you know, where people uh, have more cats do suicidal things or have more of this, you know, uh, higher incidence of this. Okay, we brain. have three cats. <laughs> I'm starting to worry. And thank you. I'm sorry we, we hit the time thing there. That was a good one. I appreciate it. I just want to share with you some of the things I want to get into. Amazon raised their their base wage to $15 an hour three years ago. So did that cause jobs to vanish in rural areas, low-income areas, like Republicans claim raising the minimum wage would do? I'll tell you what happened. The chairman of the Fed is speaking out, saying don't get so happy about 6.2% unemployment like they were celebrating on CNN and MSNBC. He's, He's saying don't. Sean Hannity is going after colleges in the, in the uh, $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package, the American rescue package, wrongly. He's misstating the facts and lying about them. Greg Abbott is trying to slur his span. I mean, it's just bizarre. Not, and it's not just him, too. Dan Patrick, too, these, these slurs. And uh, the Republican senators who are opposing a, uh, an HHS nominee are taking literally millions of dollars from an industry that this guy wants to regulate. Let's pick up your phone calls here. Lou in Pueblo, Colorado. Hey, Lou, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, good morning. Uh, nice to be kind of bored with politics instead of running from fire to fire. I was going to talk go. about messaging, but you had asked me, I'm a long hauler with COVID. 
and you had asked me to call in and update every so often. Well, I've been gradually, it's been about a year, gradually, slowly getting better. I got the vaccine two and a half days ago, and all these lingering symptoms are just about gone by Monday. I think I'll have to turn in my long hauler card. So, Did the really vaccine seem to help with your long haul symptoms? Absolutely. They just about vanished in two and a half days. That's amazing. That's really good news. I hope somebody's doing some research on that one, Lou. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm going to go get a shot every week. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> there you go. So well, you called about something I'm else. Talk about, I like to do things that I can do because if I make plans for you, well, you may not have time, so I'd rather make plans for me. And I'm actually getting a difference doing this. What I've done is two things. One, I don't use the phrase conspiracy theory. I always substitute in writing and speech impossible conspiracy fantasy. And people back off right away because they know it's a fantasy, okay? So they don't push they won't push another one on you. So Yeah, you wouldn't even have to insert the, the modifier impossible. You could simply replace the word theory with fantasy. I think that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Conspiracy fantasies. Yes. Well, that's what I do when I'm talking. I say conspiracy, fantasy, and writing, I'll say impossible. Uh, and yeah. it's working. People, people back off. The other thing is, you know, we have, we have this statement, these unnecessary words. If I say an angry young man went into the liquor store. Well, that's kind of a, I'm going to think uh, angry young men, something bad may happen. But I hear angry young black man went into the liquor store. Well, why do you need to say black man, testosterone poisoning affects you regardless of your skin color. So what I'm doing in talking, talking with people now, I always insert an angry young white man went in here, an angry young man whose race I don't know. Because I want to bring up this point of sticking these words in that we automatically connotate that really don't belong there. Yeah, so it's, yeah it's like Dr. Seuss's stuff. Yep. Well, now, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss, I grew up at the time he was writing his books. You couldn't find anything that wasn't racist at that time. Oh, so I agree. Disney I, yeah. cartoons were. Look at how look at how the Mickey, the early Mickey Mouse cartoons were portraying black people as essentially minstrels, horrible portrayals of Chinese and Japanese. Of course, this was in the decade, you know, in the 1950s, in the decade after World War II, when we fought a war against Japan. But still, it was racist depictions. Yes, absolutely. And that's why the Seuss Foundation, or whatever it's called, you know, this foundation that uh, owns Theodor Geisel's work, that was his real name, as I recall, they're saying, you know, we're going to take those out of print. Well, that's fine. That's their privilege. Yeah, and it wasn't Biden. (laughs) No. Yeah, no, it wasn't. No, and it wasn't Democrats, and it wasn't the U.S. government. Lou, i got to move along, but thank you for the call, and I'm so glad to hear that the vaccine actually helped you with your long-haul syndrome. That's amazing. Jimmy in Southgate, California. Hey, Jimmy, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I'm first-time caller, long-time listener. Wanted thank to you. talk to you about where do progressives go to retire? I started thinking about this in the past week because I had a, a former co-worker, who has been retired for a few years, called me out of the blue last week and was all excited to tell me about how they've moved to Arkansas. And then when she described this paradise in Arkansas, it just kind of gave me the chills. They moved to a town called Bella Vista. I don't know if you know it. The next uh, town over is Bentonville, the hometown and the headquarters for the Walton family and, and Walmart. Anyway, uh, hmm. Bella Vista is a 28,000 population, and it's basically a giant gated community. The city in, uh, has seven lakes on it, and they're all private. You have to be a homeowner in the city or a guest to be able to access these lakes. Anyway, it's 98% white. My friend said that it's 80% Republican, and... She said that she was just scared of moving. She had to move out of California because she didn't feel safe living in California anymore. So they sold their home, moved to this supposed paradise. And uh, she said that, you know, people were, you know, here in California were being held up with armed robberies. And she was afraid that in the next time a black criminal, her words, 
a black criminal is shot by policemen, there'd be a huge riot and she would no longer be safe. And of course, there's... So Jimmy, what's your point? Well, so if these racists are moving out of California to these enclaves, where do progressives go to, uh, you oh. know, we can't... We, yeah. And so, you know, where, where's a good place for us to, you know, to find our paradise that isn't racist, isn't white supremacist, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting that that there are communities forming. I mean, it's not surprising. It's uh, this happened in the in the 50s after the Brown uh, v. Board decision happened with, you know, private schools, these these all white private academies that opened up all over the South, you know, that led to even all-white universities. You know, Bob Jones was the, probably the most famous example where he went to court to enforce his all-whiteness, as it were, among other things. So I'm not surprised by that. As far as progressives retiring, I, I, I don't see any. Uh, you know, I think, you know, progressives represent the majority of Americans. Something like 80% of Americans think that, you know, Social Security and Medicare should be strengthened. Over 70% of Americans think that we should all have a national health care system. Over 70%, well, actually, in one study showed as high as 90% of Americans think we should have a higher minimum wage. You know, where you get to 15%, then your support drops down into the, into the 80s. Progressive, we are America. We represent the actual values of this country. We are Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, you know, among others, Hinduism and Buddhism as well. Um, we represent the values of these religions. There was an extraordinary rant on Newsmax where one of their hosts went off on this thing saying Biden is waging a new war on Christianity. He says, so Joe claims to be a devout Catholic, right? The church disagrees. His support of abortion disqualifies him from being a devout Catholic. Well, my recollection is that in Matthew 25, what Jesus talked about was you can't go with me to heaven unless you feed the hungry, visit those in prison, house the homeless, you clothe the naked, heal the sick. All right? And I don't recall any time in the Bible where Jesus said you can't have abortions. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, it's just like this strange stuff. These, these, these bizarre people who claim to represent Christianity actually are not representing anything that Jesus ever said. And these bizarre people like your friend Jimmy who claim to represent America uh, do not represent the, the vast majority of Americans in terms of their ideals, their values, their goals, their aspirations. So I think all of America, frankly, is the place where progressives should retire. I think we all need to be in our own communities, you know, wherever they may be, and be doing whatever we can to make them better. There's a great story on Daily Kos today about how uh, Texas, because Texas, you know, young people have moved into Texas, and there's a whole new generation coming up, how uh, a new Texas is fighting with the old Texas, represented by bozos like Greg Abbott. And Texas, I think, in the, in the next five years, I think Texas is going to flip blue. And I think much of the rest of the country is. Hopefully. Because <laughs> that's where we're at as a country. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Anyhow, Jimmy, thank you for the call and the provocative question. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. 
Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Cliff in Santa Clarita watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Cliff, what's on your mind today? Uh, real quick, Brother Tom, before I get to my point, I've seen Art Laffer and Stephen Moore telling all their viewers how raising the minimum wage is going to be bad for poor people. I, it's, oh, well, you guys are shameless. stick around for the next hour. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Anyways, um, the question I have for you, Dom, is Joe Biden playing it too safe? Because what I see happening is, you know, Joe's been trying to be president for decades. He finally achieved his ultimate goal. And is he playing it too safe? He doesn't want to ruffle too many feathers. He's hesitant to pursue the criminals from this past administration. He's not sanctioning MSP. Well, hang on just a second, Cliff. Let's take these things one at a time. He doesn't okay. even have basically, you know, a head of the Justice Department. I mean, he's he's lacking. You know, Bill Barr is gone, but all his people are still there. And Biden doesn't have control of the Justice Department yet. There's still a bunch okay. of Trump holdovers there. I'm just concerned, Tom, because we remember, I mean, I, I mentioned this to you a few months ago. I said that the Democrats need to take their gloves off and fight like the Republicans do. Stop being Mr. Nice Guys. Remember when President Obama said he wants to look forward and not behind? We all remember that. I'm just, are we saying, are we yeah. going to see the same thing play out with Mr. I don't Biden? know. We're two months I into it, though, Cliff. I want him to go big and go hard. And frankly, yeah. he's gone much bigger and much more aggressive than Barack Obama did or than Bill Clinton did. And he is taking on the Republicans in a lot of ways. He desperately needs an attorney general. I mean, you've got Merrick Garland, whose nomination now is being held up now by Tom Cotton, you know, has put a hold on Merrick Garland. I think they're going to blow past that. But he's, I think, frankly, the Republicans are trying to delay uh, Garland getting in into the Department of Justice because they're afraid of what's going to be found there. And I think some of them okay. are afraid that they themselves are going to, you know, it's going to it's going to come out that they themselves have been collaborating with these uh, traitors. And right. it wouldn't surprise me if Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz were among that bunch. They're starting to go through people's, you know, phone records. They're of they're course. getting skitzy. They're getting they're getting worried. But, okay. you know, with regard to things like blowing up the filibuster, I mean, the problem is I remember living in Vermont in the early 2000s during the Bush administration when the Senate was 50-50. And Jim Jeffords, who represented Vermont, along with Bernie Sanders at the time, excuse me, along with Patrick Leahy at the time, uh, Bernie was in the House, um, Jim Jeffords was a Republican. And he was occasionally voting with the Democrats. And the Republicans started really ragging on him, really getting on his case. And so he said, okay, screw it, I'll become a Democrat, or I'll be, you know, I'll caucus with the Democrats. He became an independent. And that immediately flipped control of the Senate to the Democrats. So, I mean, you know, the danger is that if Democrats rag on Joe Manchin too hard, he might just do the same thing that the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, did, who was elected as a Democrat and then became a Republican. And Manchin could do the same thing. And then you have, you know, hello, Mr. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So, you know, I, I think we have to realize that there's some very, very large political fault lines here that Biden's having to navigate. Cliff, thank you for the call. Jerry in Chester, Virginia. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? I don't know if you are aware of this, but the minimum wage was voted on to add it to the COVID-19 relief bill. Were you watching it on C-SPAN, too? I missed that. I I knew that Bernie was going to introduce that as an amendment. What happened? Yeah, it looks like we have more traitors in the midst. The final vote was 58 to 42, so eight Mm. Democrats, looks like eight Democrats voted against it besides Senate, well, Senator and Manchin were against it, plus six others, and I can't. I try to Google who were who were the other six, so I, I don't. It, but it's you know, it's so so disappointing, so disappointing. Well, what it tells you, you is know? that the Democratic Party is not as united as it needs to be if it's going to pass 
you know, big progressive legislation. And that means that, you know, we've got a lot of work to do inside our local Democratic parties, showing up at the local Democratic Party, becoming part of it, and building a progressive infrastructure within the Democratic Party so that progressives are put up in primaries and progressives are running in, in, in actual elections so that we, yeah. can, we can ultimately pass that kind of legislation. Um, What's going to happen, know, though, with the, um, with the H? I'm afraid, are they going to get rid of the filibuster? Because they're going to have to get rid of the filibuster to pass H.R. 1. So what are they going to do with that? Yeah. That's very important. Well, this was the op-ed that I wrote over at Medium.com, and, and what I'm suggesting is, I mean, Manchin and Cinema have both said that they love the filibuster because it, quote, promotes debate. Well, in fact, the way the filibuster works right now is not anything like the old Jimmy Stewart movie, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Instead, what, what you have right now is, you know, if Ted Cruz wants to filibuster a, a, you know, a piece of legislation, all he has to do is send an email saying, I object. That's it. He doesn't even have to send the email. He can have his chief of staff send the email. And, and suddenly, you know, everything grinds to a halt until the Democrats can get together 60 people. If we went back to the filibuster, or not back necessarily, but if we reinvented the filibuster along the lines of Frank Capra's movie, and I think that movie was, what, 30, whenever it was, 29, it was the late 20s, early 30s. If we reinvented the filibuster like that movie, then what we would say is, okay, Republicans, if you want to filibuster this, you have to have 40 people, 40 of you have to stay on the floor of the House continuously while one of them speaks. And as long as they're speaking, you can't have a vote. But the minute that you've got fewer than 40 people on the floor, or the minute you're all done talking, there will be a vote. And I mean, you know, that's just like, and, and that satisfies Cinema and Manchin's requirement that, that the filibuster actually encourage debate, which it doesn't do right now. Right now it discourages debate. So I, I'm calling it the, the Jimmy Stewart filibuster. And I think that, you know, because I, we're not going to blow it up, right? It's not, as long as Manchin and Cinema are taking this line in the sand of, you know, we're, we're, we like the filibuster, it's not going to go away. And let's reform it. Let's turn it into what most Americans already think it is. How could you object to that, right? You're listening to Tom Hartman. First of all, the big news that, uh, that I caught this morning watching t- uh, you know, the, the news programs on television uh, was that the unemployment rate, that, that, unemploy- that employment went up, that the economy gained a little over 100,000 jobs, and that the unemployment rate is down to 6.2%, which sounds good, right? And in fact, that's how everybody, oh my God, the economy is recovering. And Republicans are now using that as a talking point. In fact, I heard it used three times this morning on television. Where they, were, where they were asking people, well, you know, if the economy's recovering, do we really need a $1.9 trillion stimulus? Well, first of all, it's not a stimulus, it's a rescue package, because you've got 18 million people who are currently taking unemployment benefits. You've got another six or, six or seven or eight million people who can't get unemployment benefits anymore. They've expired on them. They live in states where it's, you know, really hard to do. Um, but, you know, what, what, the, what people are saying is, well, you know, unemployment rate's only 6.2%. I mean, that's a really good sign, isn't it? Shouldn't we just say, you know, everything's good? Well, not so fast. This is from the Financial Times. This was uh, one of their lead stories uh, day before yesterday. It's by uh, Jared, Jared Polity and Nicole, uh, Taylor Nicole Rogers. And they write, uh, the rapid decline in the U.S. jobless rate has so far exceeded the forecast of private sector economists. In other words, hey, sounds like it's good news, right? But the headline figure has obscured far less encouraging trends in America's labor market and is now considered an incomplete and unreliable guide to the trajectory of the U.S. recovery, something I didn't hear on television this morning. They go on to say, published on a, this is, they're quoting Jay Powell, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. This is a speech he gave just about three weeks ago. Quote, published unemployment rates during COVID have dramatically understated the deterioration in the labor market, said Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell during a speech last month, noting that a more realistic unemployment rate right now is closer to 10%. And then, so why is the unemployment rate saying 6.2% when, according to the chairman of the Fed, it should be 10%? Well, it's because people have dropped out of the labor market. And when you're dropped out of the labor market, you no longer are considered unemployed. You're not even counted. You're not counted as employed. You're not counted as unemployed. 
you're counted as somebody who doesn't want to work, somebody who isn't working, somebody who's a child, somebody who's a spouse, somebody who's, you know, whatever it may be, but, you know, somebody who's just not part of the labor market. They go on to say, since the start of the coronavirus crisis, the U.S. labor force has lost 4.3 million people, 2.5 million of them women. Chairman Powell, again, Jay Powell, the fear of the virus and the disappearance of employment opportunities is the primary cause of the exodus from the labor force. He says older workers are retiring early because they don't want to be exposed to the pandemic. Younger employees are waiting for brighter times in the hope that their skills do not erode in the meantime. So, number one, it ain't as good as everybody says. Number two, now, three years ago, Amazon raised their minimum wage, their starting wage, to $15 an hour. And they have places, you know, they've got facilities in very low-wage areas. This is over in the New York Times today by Ben Castleman and Jay Tankersley. When Amazon raises its minimum wage, local companies follow suit, and they do. Amazon has embarked on an advertising blitz this winter about raising the federal minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour, they note. In the areas where Amazon operates, low-wage workers at other businesses have also seen significant wage growth since 2018, which is when Amazon raised their, their minimum, minimum wage to $15. The gains are a direct result of Amazon's corporate decision to increase starting pay to 15 bucks an hour three years ago. So, question, did that cause a loss of jobs, like the Republicans tell us, if you raise the minimum wage, jobs go away. Quote, this is from today's New York Times, there is little evidence that raising the minimum wage would lead to significant job loss, even in low-cost rural areas. And then they go to this actual study, this latest study from Brandeis University and, uh, and, and uh, UC Berkeley. They studied Amazon, Walmart, and Target, all uh, three companies that pay $15 an hour. Um, and what they found was that wage increases by large corporate employers appear to drive up wages without driving down employment. They call this ripple effects. Well, of course, it's not gonna, it's gonna drive up wages and employment because people have more money to spend, so they're gonna stimulate the local economy where they're spending. They go on to say, in the 1980s, the spread of Walmart and other national retailers helped push down wages as they displaced smaller, often unionized local chains. And of course, they put out of business a lot of small family-owned businesses where, you know, if, if you know the people you work with, it's really tough to screw them, right? But so they, so, and they go on to say, now big national retailers seem to be helping push wages up. And then they go on to note, no Republican senator supports a $15 bill, a $15 an hour bill that Amazon, Amazon, the guys who are fighting unionization down in, in, in uh, Alabama, Amazon supports a $15 an hour minimum wage. It's amazing. And, and here's the proof, right? Three years, a full three years that we can study with three different companies in dozens of communities all across the country where they raise their wages from seven, eight, nine dollars an hour up to $15 an hour. And not only did it not cost jobs, but it caused all the other wages in the local areas to go up, which is what we used to call the union effect. You know, when 10, 20, 30% of the workforce was unionized, you had an equivalent amount of other companies that raised their wages just to compete with the unions. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. By the way, I have the vote on the $15 minimum wage. I just pointed out to you that, you know, good, solid, three-year-long science shows that raising wages to $15 
regardless, you know, whether it's downtown San Francisco or whether it's rural Arkansas, it doesn't matter. What it does is it raises wages in other low wage businesses nearby because now they have to compete with a higher wage employer and it doesn't lead to job losses. Instead, it revives local economies. It stimulates local economies. So the science is solid on this. The senators who voted against a $15 minimum wage, it was actually a procedural vote, so they weren't literally voting against the wage. They were voting against the process of including the minimum wage in this $1.9 trillion American disaster relief bill. The senators who voted no were uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, John Tester of Montana, Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, Chris Coons of Delaware, Tom Carper of Delaware. Delaware, keep in mind, is where half of all the companies listed on the Dow are headquartered. And Angus King, the independent from Maine. And of course, every single Republican, including, we thought maybe Susan Collins or, or uh, you know, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska might vote for this. No, no. So the vote was 58 no, 42 yes for a $15 minimum wage. The Senate is not yet ready to help you out if you are working full-time and living in poverty. I'm sorry to tell you. But, you know, step by step, at least we got 42 votes. I think, you know, a year or two ago, Democrats wouldn't have even been able to pull together 30 votes for raising the minimum wage. So, you know, step by step. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls here. Jerry in San Francisco. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I'm glad that you talked about the Amazon folks trying to organize. And then from time to time, you bring up the folks who are trying to organize with fast food workers. And you and I being from the same parts of the country growing up there in uh, Michigan, I wondered how people view union organizing to just the average person. They say, okay, they're organizing at Amazon. What does that look like? And I just wanted to share a story with you about what it looked like before the UAW was born in 1900. So he was working at the Ford, I think it was Rouge plant, before the organization of the UAW. And he told one story where he he met this woman who comes out from the midnight shift, 7 o'clock every morning. They talk for a little bit, and then he goes in. And it's one morning he didn't see her. And he got concerned because, you know, you could be fired for just being sick back then. And so when he went in, her fingers were on the punch machine that both of them use. He using it from the morning to the afternoon, she using it from midnight to to dawn. He goes in there and the foreman says, clean clean the fingers off and and get ready to go. They were actually had a machine where you put your fingers in these heavy gloves and you move the part, then the part gets flat and then you move the part back. Well, the automobile production line needed to be sped up. And it almost looked like a, a I Love Lucy routine with the, the candies coming down the conveyor belt. So they had to quit using the, the gloves. So you'd push the piece of metal in, thing would come down with your bare hand, you'd pull it back out before another piece comes down the piece. And she didn't get her fingers out of in time. So he had to um, show up to this grisly uh, situation where he had to pick up her fingers and throw them in the garbage. That's what the auto factories were like. And and he told many, many stories, but I thought that was really the most graphic to remind people or even educate people because it's for most people under, what, 45, I don't think you even uh, know what it was like. Yeah, no, and the history is not hidden. I mean, you know, you can easily, from the Ludlow massacre forward, and, uh, you know, Woody Guthrie's story and all these, I mean, there's just, there's there's a whole collection of remarkable stories. The, in my next book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, there's the, the story of Tommy Douglas, the father of the Medicare for All program in Canada. When he was seven, eight years old, they lived in a second floor apartment that overlooked kind of the center of this little town in Saskatchewan, as I recall. And there was a union organizing meeting in the street. The union guys, they were guys trying to organize a union against one of the local companies or, you know, within one of the local companies. And the police came out and shot several people dead. Tommy Douglas mm-hmm. watched that. And he carried that his whole life. I mean, you know, he talked about that all the time. He was very into unions. You know, this would have been probably in the 1920s or the 1930s. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Jerry. That's a great story. And thank you very much for sharing it with us. I do appreciate that. Thank you. Mario in San Diego. Hey, Mario, what's up? Hey, Tom. First time caller. Talking about COVID and depression in kids and uh, suicidal 
thoughts. It's getting mm-hmm. close to home. Uh, my son right now, it's been a year, it's been very, very hard on him. It's been pretty hard. And yesterday and today I had a pretty deep conversation about his thoughts and how he has got no hope and just sees it in such a negative way. And he does blame COVID. It's taken a lot away from him, school, friends. And we've taken COVID pretty serious because we have two family members that did pass away. And I quite don't know how to talk to him and reach to him because he's, I can see he's pretty um, depressed, hit him hard. And um, I like maybe you can uh, give some answers and some kind of um, way for parents to uh, communicate to their kids. We're all busy. We don't have time and we kind of uh, just don't think about uh, children and uh, kids and how they see this whole uh, epidemic in their point of view. And um, I'll take my answer off there. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Mario, thank you for the call. One of the things that is a uh, a relatively consistent feature among people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts or despair in general is that when you ask them what they, you know, if they can imagine themselves a year from now or two years from now, if you have ask the average person that question, they'll typically kind of look up a little bit and they're actually looking into their imagination of the future and they're seeing themselves in the future doing something. And uh, people who are really good at setting goals and achieving those goals are really consistent at this. They will have a, you can even say, where do you see yourself? And they can point to a spot and say, there I am, and this is what I'm doing, and this is what I'm wearing. And they've got a very fully formed uh, kind of holistic image of themselves in the future, being successful or being happy or accomplishing their goals. And when you ask people who are suicidal or in despair, uh, you know, please describe to me yourself a year from now, they will not do that. They will look down, they'll look to the sides, uh, looking down indicating they're kind of dumping into their feelings, they'll look to the sides as if they're having, trying to have a conversation with themselves about it. Sometimes they'll look up and just kind of flail around. They'll say, I can't see that. And I'm not trying to offer you any specific therapeutic advice, Mario. I'm not licensed to do that. It wouldn't be uh, appropriate for me to do that. But this is a general principle. I'm pretty sure I wrote about this in my book, Walking Your Blues Away. And I also wrote about it in one of my books on ADHD. Actually, there's a whole chapter about this in, uh, I'd have to go back and, it got retitled. It was originally called uh, Healing ADD. And it's got a new title, but it just came out a, a, you know, a year or two ago. But, but it's called Timeline Therapy. And so the way that you work through that, or you, one, of the, one way that, that, that a person could work through that is to help people construct a future. You know, what would you like your future to look like? What are the things that really animate you? What are the things that get you excited? How can you imagine bringing those things into your future and accomplishing those things in your future? And, um, you know, you, typically you'll get some opposition to that. People don't want to give up their current state. It's hard to change states, but it is possible. There are a lot of good therapists. Cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of a subset of the sort of thing that I'm talking about. And um, most, I don't know, most psychologists today are real familiar with that, but there's a lot of them out there. There's good therapists who could help. So Mario, I hope that that's a starting point for you, but do not mess around with this. Kids committing suicide is a real thing, and it has gotten worse as a result of the COVID epidemic or pandemic, and not just kids. I mean, people are experiencing despair, and to get past despair, we have to be able to imagine a future. Does any of that make sense to you, Mario? Yes. Yeah, okay. Check it out, and I wish you the very best. It's, it's really tough. Worrying about our children is just the most difficult part of being a parent. Rodney in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Rodney, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? I was wondering if you have followed any of the uh, Brexit drama over the last year or so and what your thoughts are on the parallels with what they're going through and what we've experienced. They're a little behind, a little behind on it from our state right now. Did you say on Brexit? Yeah, I don't know if you followed any of it over there, but I've just been I've been doing a deep dive on some of it uh, over the last couple right. months online, watching some of the older you know podcasts and what, and they've got some really good talk shows over there. But the parallels are just mm-hmm. really, really scary and chilling. You know the oh yeah motivation. Well, you know Cambridge it. Analytica 
was the British-based company that basically ran the Trump campaign's Facebook strategy, which is what you know they credit with his 2016 victory. And they also ran the Brexit strategy. And in, in addition to this, you had a large number of foreign actors. The Russian trolls have been well identified by the U.S. government, the Mueller report and whatnot, who were engaging themselves in the Brexit stuff in the U.K. and in the pro-Trump stuff in the United States. But there were also foreign actors from other countries that were also encouraging Brits to say, no, no, we hate the European Union. Um, you know, countries that don't like the EU, right? And or see the EU as competition and who don't like democracy in America and they want to turn America into an authoritarian state. You know, there's two capitalist models out there outside of regulated capitalism that we've historically had here in the United States. And that is communist capitalism, which is being practiced in China and Vietnam right now, and very successfully, by the way, in terms of an economy. What the downside is it destroys democracy and free speech and personal liberty. And gangster capitalism, which is what they practice in Turkey, uh, what they practice in Russia, what they practice in Hungary, which is where basically the oligarchs run the capitalist system and run the government. And the countries and the, that are big fans of, well, that's, that's what the Republican Party, the Republican Party has chosen. The Democratic Party is all in on regulated capitalism. The Republican Party is, is all in on gangster capitalism or oligarchy, you could call it. And that's been the, the, you know, on the world stage, everybody, you know, we used to have this communist versus capitalist. It's not the U.S. versus the Soviet Union anymore. It's U.S. regulated capitalism or European regulated capitalism versus Russian gangster capitalism or Chinese communist capitalism. And these three systems are actually competing on the world stage for domination. Rodney, thank you for the call. And I'm very concerned about how the Republican Party has been embracing gangster capitalism. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. The Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Walking Your Blues Away, How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well-Being from Chapter 1, How Trauma Sticks and the Mechanism of PTSD. One of the enduring mysteries in the field of psychology is why the same event produces such different memories and responses in different people. Citing a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the writer noted the researchers surveyed more than 6,000 soldiers in the month before and after service in Iraq and Afghanistan. Almost 17% of those who fought in Iraq reported symptoms of major depression, severe anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, compared with 11% of the troops who served in Afghanistan. In World War II, post-war depression and anxiety was called battle fatigue. In World War I, we called it shell shock. The question isn't so much why it happens. We know GIs in war do and see horrific things. The question that perplexes us is why post-war anxiety and depression haunts some veterans and not others. Of course, some vets see harder combat than others, but even that doesn't account for the statistics. There are still huge variations among individual soldiers in how they respond to the same event. The same is true in the civilian world. Some people develop PTSD and others don't, facing the exact same circumstances. In order to understand why some people are still shocked months and even years after a traumatic event, it's necessary to first understand how the brain and mind processes trauma. The brain is a complex collection of deeply interconnected parts and processes. I'm vastly oversimplifying here for the purpose of description. And in light of those caveats, here's a possible scenario that's not inconsistent with much of what's known about brain function. There's a part of the limbic brain, or visceral brain, called the hippocampus that's believed to function as a one-day scratch pad for memory. Everything you experience throughout the day is stored in the hippocampus. In order for the impressions of the experience to become a long-term memory, they must pass through the hippocampus into the rest of the brain. People with a damaged hippocampus remember past events but have extreme difficulty learning new things. Although the rest of the brain is able to integrate recent information from the hippocampus in relation to stored memories, in order to understand that one thing happened a week ago and another thing happened a month ago, the hippocampus knows only one time, today. During the night as we sleep, the hippocampus dumps its information from the day into the rest of the brain for processing, sorting, storing, and disposing of irrelevant information. As the brain is processing the details of the day from the hippocampus, we experience what we call dreaming. Many sleep researchers are convinced that when we experience REM sleep, most of the events, including the traumas of our daily life, are processed. The processing of information management completed when we wake up in the morning, the hippocampus is once again empty and ready to record another day. 
The problem emerges when the hippocampus is carrying information that's too much or too hot for the larger brain slash mind to handle. When a recent memory is too strong to be easily and unremarkably processed, it presents in our dream world as a nightmare. If that still doesn't download the information from the hippocampus, then the trauma either becomes buried in the subconscious, a process Freud referred to as repression, or it gets thrown back into the hippocampus the next morning. It's as if the brain says, whoa, that's too much for me to process in one evening. Please hang on to it for another day. When the person wakes up in the morning, the information is still there in the hippocampus, still remembered and known and felt as if it happened that same very day. The conjecture that the hippocampus knows little about the more distant past accounts for the unique feature of true PTSD that the person feels every day as if the past event happened today, or at least in the very recent past. The trauma is always front, center, new, fresh, and raw. The consequences can be psychologically and emotionally devastating. Every day is affected by a past event. The traumatic event never passes from now until then and is never processed and filed away in the memory banks where it loses the power to cause pain and problems on a daily basis. The impact of this on the mind and the emotions is staggering. Brain scans even demonstrate that before a PTSD event has been processed, the amygdala, a part of the brain responsible for strong emotional states such as those involved with survival or the perception of a threat to survival, and the hippocampus are not functioning normally. The brain scan makes it possible to, in a way, see the effect of the stuck memory. After processing the memory, these parts of the brain usually return to normal functioning. One of the key concepts of many schools of psychology is that human beings are most functional when every part of the mind has access to all other parts. In particular, this functionality is a matter of having full access to positive resources, such as memories of times when we were successful in our undertakings and the good feelings we associate with those accomplishments. Working from this level of functionality, then, when we take on a new task, for example, we first remember times in the past when we attempted something similar and accomplished our goals. This functionality can be accessed in all endeavors, from embarking on a new love relationship to making your first public speaking engagement. Memories of past accomplishments and capabilities are stored in parts of the brain far from the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala and hippocampus, part of our brain's most primary and primitive structures, lie deep in the brain. Thus, having a negative memory stuck deep in the hippocampus blocks the pain and fear associated with that memory from reaching and associating with positive memories and resource states, which are housed in more distant parts of the brain. So, in other words, if we don't get these traumatic memories out of the hippocampus, then everything coming in gets filtered through that and blocked having access to resource states that can help and heal us. So, the rest of the book is how to get that stuff out of the hippocampus. The book is Walking Your Blues Away. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Rich in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon, Tom. Thank you very much. I'd like to talk about how I really smell a smear going on for Governor Cuomo in New York. But I'd also like to offer to a previous caller's concerns about mood and self-destruction that the thyroid is this pivotal portion of ourselves that if it's low-functioning, if, it, if it's a hypothyroid, your mood gets destroyed. And yeah. it's the easiest thing to have it misdiagnosed, believe it yeah. or not. No, I was I've, told, I've oh, you've seen you've this got in my own fine family. Numbers. You've got fine numbers there. You're fine. And yet I had all these other symptoms that were completely dismissed with extra iodine. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden I was, you know, Hercules. And it was pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> and, and iodine, I mean, you know, iodine is an essential nutrient for humans. And uh, these thyroid disorders, Synthroid is the most widely prescribed drug in the United States, prescription drug. But it don't and work. It's a, you need, yeah, your, and it's you a, need your liver enzymes to be able to make Synthroid work. And most folks are low on their liver function. Yeah, and Did one of the more uh, <laughs> common incidents of this is in women who have had children. And I'm guessing, this is just my personal theory, that producing a baby 
because babies need iodine too for their little thyroids, that that drains it out of your body. And if you're not eating, if you're not eating a lot of seafood, kelp, dulse, dulse uh, is spectacular stuff. You put a half a teaspoon of dulse, it's a red powdered seaweed, put a half a teaspoon of dulse into a cup of coffee and you do that every morning and you will have, you will be full of pep and vim and vigor like you just never imagined. I'm actually a big proponent for a Lugol solution, which is super easy to use. It's for the name of the 1700s French biologist, Lugol, L-U-G-O-L, apostrophe mm-hmm. S. So check that out. That's super easy to use. But Is I that the uh, to, iodine you put on your skin? Well, uh, I got a secret to tell you, sir. <laughs> you can use it orally, too. You put it... You, yeah. I use this stuff called Calm, which is a magnesium supplement. And I mix that, mm-hmm. and it's because magnesium is a cofactor to the iodine. And uh, I mix that up as the drink, and then I put uh, seven drops of my 2% in, and uh, that's first thing in the morning, and I'm, I'm good to go. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it's super simple, and, and we, don't, we don't have it in our, our diet in ways because of the way agriculture is practiced and uh, yeah. where it was the, uh, how to say, the additive in uh, fortified salt. People don't use salt because they're afraid of hypertension. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, the goiter epidemic is why we, is why we got iodized salt to begin with. With regard to Governor Cuomo, I don't know if he's being smeared or not. I do know that, you know, he's a bully. I mean, you know, everybody, he brags about that. He he makes things happen. He made tough decisions. Fox is up to its hips in criticizing him. And that tells me that there's a stink. Yeah, or they're, or they're just being opportunists, uh, one or the other. I, I, you know, I think time will tell here. Absolutely. You know it. Yeah. yeah. Rich, I got to run. Thanks. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Gerilyn Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. All the folks who help make this show work for you, and thank you for helping, you know, helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag your it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 